Hey everybody, the May 2023 Roundup is brought to you by Arcane Wonders and their new expansion, Furnace Interbellum. Now, if you're a longtime fan of the show, you know Furnace was a big hit with me and Jen. It was my number two highest ranked game of the year it came out, and this expansion delivers even more good stuff. First of all, it increases the player count to five for people who like such things, but I am much more interested in the new types of components, like these programmable bid chips, so you can keep pumping more and more coal into them. You can go higher than uh, nine. You can bid 10 11, 11, 12 if you're really desperate for something. So these add a lot of variety. Also, the things you're bidding on, the cards that uh, become your engine in the game, well, they've added a new concept, instant payouts as soon as you win them. That is very nice. A big shift from the original. And also, more powerful cards that have really interesting interactions with your existing engine stuff. In the original game, all your engine cards were pretty much just good conversion. Now they can do a lot more stuff. And on top of that, probably the coolest thing are these manager tokens that you can win by bidding as well. And what these are are basically workers that you can assign to your buildings during the production phase and from round to round assign them to different ones. These are huge game changers and I love them. And if all that weren't enough I said, hey, it goes up to five now. It also has hugely improved the solo game because the solo game was fine in the original, but now you can go up against specific characters with different special case rules so you get a different feel every time you play. When you're playing solo, you're playing against two of them. So, there is a lot to recommend in Furnace Interbellum. And, uh, folks, we are now ready to go on with the show. And this month, I've got a few games to talk about. But, unfortunately, most of the contributors are MIA. Shay went off to Japan, so we're not going to hear from him this episode. Kimberly just told me about an hour ago that her parents are visiting from out of town so she doesn't have time to film her entry, but Ruel got me his. So you're going to be hearing from me and Ruel in this episode. And like always with these monthly roundups, we're giving you everything in countdown format from our least favorite games to our most favorite games. But before we get to Ruel's and my countdown, let me at least tell you what Shay and Kimberly would have talked about if they were here, as well as Amy and Maggie, because there was some very cool new stuff that went on the channel. And by the way, links for all these things are down in the show notes. So, for starters, Shay... Uh, where are we? Yes, here we go. Shay was very, very brave and did a run-through for the new Alien Invasion expansion for On Mars, taking what might arguably be um, Vita Lasarda's heaviest game to date and making it even bigger and more complex, adding um, one-versus-all gameplay, or what was really interesting to me, cooperative gameplay, which is what Shay demonstrated in this big, epic run-through. I think it... Uh, maybe that's why we're not hearing from Maybe he hasn't recovered yet, because this was a beast to cover, but as always, Shay did a fantastic job. Also, he did a uh, sponsored preview for Sigil. And uh, this is a game that I think is still crowdfunding. It's still got a few days left on its campaign. And if you want the elevator pitch of this, after watching Shay's video, I would call this basically what happens if you cross Go with Magic the Gathering. You know, that simple, clean, elegant, classic uh, feel of area control with player powers and all kinds of cool 
fantasy stuff. It was very, very neat. You can check out um, his video down below. And like I said, it's still fundraising uh, even as we speak. So that's what Shay had on the channel. Kimberly brought us the deluxe new version of Teotihuacan, uh, which, oh my gosh, the game looks prettier. It's a collection. It's like a big box collection of all the stuff that has come before. And I'm not going to go too deep into it because Kimberly said she promises she'll be back in the next monthly roundup and she'll tell you uh, her final thoughts on it. But that wasn't all she covered. I was very, very excited to take a look at Bamboo, the latest game from Devere, teaming up with um, Jermaine Milan. Or is it Milan Germain? The uh, you know the design team behind Batoku, and oh my gosh, this looks fantastic. Although interestingly, Kimberly had some kind of mixed feelings. Now you don't have to wait until next month to hear what she thought. Again, there's links for the run through down in the show notes. But she'll be back uh, in thirty some days to explain herself. But in the meantime. I've got to get this thing to the table. I am very excited about it. Okay, so that was Kimberly and Shay, but that's not all. We have other contributors as well. Amy and Maggie of Thinker Themer, you got a double feature this month from them, which is pretty rare. First of all, they brought us Creature Comforts, which is something people have been asking for me to get on the channel forever because it's such a sweet, charming, and clever, not quite gateway, I'm going to say it's a gateway plus uh, worker placement game. And oh my gosh, they really brought the charm to life. I can see why this is such a monster popular hit, and you can too if you want to check out their run-through. And then also... Oh man, this is really near and dear to my heart. They recently were in Taiwan, I believe. Um... And they picked up a copy of Electropolis. And coincidentally, so did Jen and I. We weren't in Taiwan, but we did get our hands, thanks to a friend of the show, um, we got a copy of Electropolis as well. And I fell so in love with this game. I'll be talking more in depth about why I think this is one of the coolest Thailand games that have come out in years. But I really wanted to get it on the channel, and Amy and Maggie liked it so much that they agreed, hey, yeah, we'll do a run-through for it. And so you can check that out now. I think they liked it a lot. I loved it, as did my wife. And so hang on until a bit later in this roundup, and you'll hear me go into a bit more detail about what makes um, Electropolis special. Okay, so uh, that wasn't all. Uh, Ruel was able to make the time to tell us what he thought. I think he's got five games to talk about. Ruel, take it away. Hi, friends. Ruel here. I played 21 games in May, and I'm going to talk about five of them here. Um, the rest of the games that I played, you can find out. Well, you're going to have to wait till the end of my list, and I'll tell you where to find them. Okay, number five is Ninth Circle. I played that here on the channel, did a run-through, and it was a lot of fun. This is a game that has a really cool mix of mechanisms. It's a hidden movement, a, um, action selection, simultaneous action selection, and also area control. Um, it's got all that mixed up in one. Um, you are in hell and trying to, you know, send your minions out to satisfy the, the big demon demon uh, person thing or whatever uh, but it's it's cool because it's got a lot of meta this game right so you're really getting ahead of your opponents um i played the a two-player game and the two-player option or two-player variant has uh something where you're taking extra pieces out and using those to block your opponent or mess with them um i like that a lot and you know when michelle and i were running through it um off camera it was a lot of hey 
I know what you're going to do. You know what I'm going to do, but I know you're going to do that. And so it's a lot of that, you know, trying to outthink your opponent, which is a lot of fun. And then the different abilities that trigger. So you can, you know, you set yourself up going around that circle uh, using the different abilities to move pieces, gain pieces, destroy pieces and whatnot. Really fun mix. And that was Ninth Circle. Uh, coming at number four is another one I did for the channel, Camel Up the Card Game. I've got to admit, I was surprised by this. Uh, when I opened it up, it was a bunch of cards, which I expected, but then they still had those classic camels from the original game. So the little plastic camels that jump around or move around the, uh, the uh, track uh, on the original, they're still there. And I didn't expect that, and I was really happy because this takes the core concept of Camel Up, which is a race game. It's a gambling game. And it just distills it down to the card, uh, card play, but what it does is it replaces the dice with cards. So instead of just rolling dice, you actually have a little more control here. Uh, you're playing cards, trying to maneuver the camels that you want to win, and uh, and you can place bets. So it's still like this, uh, the original game, but it really uh, does a nice job of getting rid of that luck factor, which me personally, I don't mind. I, I mean, I love shaking up that pyramid and throwing those dice, but I get how you know people might be drawn to this one a little more. So if you like Camel Up, uh, give this one a shot. That's Camel Up, the card game. Coming up, number three on my list is Starry Night Sky. Uh, this is a new game from Emma Larkins. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, she is the designer of Abandoned All Artichokes, which is a wonderful gateway game. And this one, Starry Night Sky, falls into that line as well. You know, I was just thinking about how we just did the list of, you know, the Spiel de Yars winners we would have picked for the last five years. I wouldn't be surprised if this, um, you know, was nominated. Uh, this is a wonderful gateway-style game. You are um, of, of amateur astronomers uh, looking through your telescopes up at the starry night sky. And there's all these constellations. You're trying to, you know, see all of them. And it uh, does that through this really cool... Uh, uh, mix of, you know, uh, building a route and you're basically, you know, placing uh, stars onto each constellation. And when you place the right stars, there's three different colors. When you uh, place the right combination for the different constellations, you have completed it or you've seen it. And then that allows you to, you know, skip over that one and go to another one. So you're going to eventually, by the end of the game, you're going to be doing these um, really cool long routes. Almost, uh, I, I would like to say, take it to ride-ish almost, but uh, what's really neat about this, what I, I really appreciate, it's very, it has a, a lot of positive feedback. So a lot of things you're doing get get you points. And I think for new gamers, that's it's really satisfying. And, you know, for me, this grizzled old gamer, it was satisfying for me. Like, I place my telescope out there, I move, I get stars for discovering new constellations. Uh, I get points, and then I get points for completing some of my in-game goals and, um, and also, at the very end, you have secret missions, so you're going to get points for that, too. Um, very positive and just a really enjoyable experience. Um, definitely recommend it uh, for a gateway-style game that's Starry Night Sky. Number two on my list, wow, Namalia is... Of, it's been a huge hit in my household and with my circle of friends here. I actually saw this game uh, last year at PAX Unplugged. I got a really quick two-minute demo from Lucky Duck Games, and I just knew immediately that this was going to be a hit. And sure enough, I got it um, almost like two weeks ago, immediately tore it open, reread the rules, and... Bang! It was it was at the table. It's been table over a dozen times already at two, three, and four players. I love it. It's a mix of uh, card uh, dr uh, drafting, 
uh, tile lane, well, card lane, right? Sort of like Sparlopolis. And then it's got this really cool uh, way of scoring, uh, somewhat like cartographers. So you're going to have these uh, four different goals that are going to score at different points in the game. Like in the first round, you're going to score A and B. Second round, B and C, and so forth. It plays over five rounds, and then the final two rounds, you can score three of those goals. And these are things that, you know, each card has a terrain and an animal. You're laying them down. Um, you have to cover at least one square um, on uh, each card, and then you're going to build your reserve of animals, right? So, you know, uh, pandas and gorillas and otters and so forth and giraffes so you score based on the different animals that you have on there but also the different terrains so there's a very big spatial element to this game and what's brilliant are those scoring cards there's so many way, different ways to score and then just the way it's set up with the scoring you're going to score different things uh every round oh my gosh i love it it's a game that takes only about 20 minutes and it's super easy to teach and you know, every single game I've had has been a wonderful experience. I love it. It's been a big hit. That's Damalia. Finally, number one for me this month, another new game that um, I think it's out for pre-order now. At the time of this video, it may just be coming out to uh, retail. It's Books of Time from Board and Dice. Oh, Chef's Kiss. Michelle and I really enjoyed this one. Uh, we actually live streamed on my channel for Tabletop Live Network, and we, I mean, I'm a book nerd, so any game that incorporates books into it, you know, always gets like, you know, I always get, you know, a little more interested in it. But this one, you are literally building a book. Uh, they give you these little like mini binders with a, a, a back cover and a front cover. And the game is um, all about drafting cards into your book. And those cards have actions on them. So it's really like a tableau builder. But the tableau is in your hands in that book. So as you acquire books or pages to your book, you do the actions, turn the page. So then you have new actions on the next set of pages. And as you're bringing in books... The, um, the, or pages to your, you have three different books. Each one's like a different category. You're going to bring those in different pages and the different pages have symbols on them. So, oh my gosh, it's set collection, tableau building, and just one of the most unique, like, um, blend of uh, mechanism and theme. Actually, I shouldn't say unique blend, but it's a perfect blend of um, mechanism and theme. It is, hey, we are writing you know, history here and we're making history by writing books and we are physically putting pages into books. I love it. And I just think it's a really unique take on tableau building, which I think a bunch of us out there really enjoy. I would call this probably like a gateway plus game. Um, and I, I love what Gordon Dice has done with this. I, I can't wait to play it again. Uh, solo. There's a solo variant. I'm just starting reading the rules. So I'm going to get that to the table real soon. Okay. Now, that's the five I played um, that I want to talk about. I've got 16 more to talk about, folks. And you can see the rest of my list live on Twitch on my channel uh, Monday. And um, you can click the show notes below for the link. And then it goes, I export it up to, uh, to uh, my YouTube channel afterwards if you can't watch it live. But um, anyways, that's it for me. Have a wonderful month and happy gaming, everybody. Bye. And okay, folks, let's not dilly-dally anymore. I've got a countdown of 11 games that Jen and I played in the month of April. And uh, let's jump in, starting with number 11 on the list, Vivarium, which is a game where scientists maneuver to be the one with the most incredible discoveries. Here's the situation. It turns out there's this mysterious lost world that uh, humanity has discovered 
full of creatures the likes of which we've never seen before. And so scientists from around the world race to, uh, to this new land to catalog and discover all the flora and fauna and score lots of points, as one does. Um, but what this game is really at its heart is a card-drafting, set-collection-y type game, where there is a grid of cards in the center of the table, a 4x4 four four grid. And everybody has two dominoes, literal physical dominoes. You know, that nice, heavy, bake-light feel. And then there's another domino in the center of the uh, board. And on your turn, you swap one of your two dominoes with that one that's in the center, thereby making that domino available to your opponents in the next turn. But uh, now you've got a new pair of dominoes, and you use them to do coordinates. Choose a row, choose a column, based on the two dominoes you have, and that's the card you grab. And you add it to your collection, and you just keep going through a few rounds, and at the end of the game, whoever got the right combination of creatures uh, to uh, to discover, and uh, locations to explore, and equipment to use, and a bonus uh, uh, point scoring cards to, to leverage, whoever got the best is going to win. And it's a simple, straightforward game. It does a very good job of player scaling in a two-player game. There's this thing that will make an entire column of cards disappear, so you're kind of racing uh, to make sure you get the right ones. And um, yeah, it just works overall. It is stunningly gorgeous. Uh, it is a fast, fun game to play, and Jen and I enjoyed it. I think it's a kind of a, a fun novel little twist on card drafting, this idea of using dominoes as a variable coordinate system. I liked everything about it, except for the fact that it is a very, very lightweight game. I mean, this is totally a gateway, and I don't know that it's one that Jen and I would want to come back to over and over again because we're looking for heavier stuff. But I could totally see this working great to uh, play with my in-laws or you know people I'm trying to convert to the hobby because it's simple, it's easy to teach, it's fun, fast, it's a nice little filler weight, uh, filler length game. And uh, yeah, it comes in at number 11 on the list, Vivarium. Okay, then let's talk about number 10 on the list, Valbara, which is a game where Neolithic clan leaders settle once and for all who will rule them all. And uh, this is another drop-dead gorgeous card-drafting game where um, we are Neolithic tribes trying to grab the right collection of terrain cards. Each one scores in a different way, and um, you know, you know, depending on you know what what types of stuff you have, what types of stuff your opponent has. But every round, there's going to be what is it, I think four of these terrain cards on offer, and every player is going to get one of them. Plus, you get to see what cards are coming in the following round, which is a nice extra little level of depth that I could be thinking about. What do I need now? But what am I going to be able to get next round? But how do you get these cards? That's where the real gameplay comes in because everybody has a deck of, if I recall correctly, 12 cards, and each card, and you have a hand, it's drawn randomly from this deck. So you know what cards everybody has, but you don't know what's in their hand. And each one of these cards has a special power and it has an initiative value. And the higher the number, the slower you're going to go, but the more powerful your ability is going to be. And so, um, on your turn, you're looking at these cards, and hey, I can play this one that's really fast, and um, it's all about looking around the table and see, has anybody played their three yet? Um, oh my gosh, all the fours are already out. Uh, you, I mean, so I know if I play this three, I'm guaranteed to get first dibs. Do I care about the cards that are on there right now? Well, not necessarily, but what if I play the card that lets me actually swap cards from the future row into the current row? 
it's a fun game. And, um, you know, I really, I think uh, you wouldn't be too far off to draw comparisons to that old classic uh, Citadels. But this game is so much more enjoyable than that, largely because there, this isn't a game where you're constantly screwing each other over and you know, you know, beating each other up and stealing things. You're just trying to outplay your opponent by figuring out what um, is it likely that they're going to do and how is our my cards going to play out once everybody picks and reveals simultaneously. It's fun. It's fast. Uh, Jen and I both thought it was very, very clever. And honestly, my only problem with it is... This is a game that is going to sing at a higher player count. Um, because several of the powers really come, you know, come into their own when, oh, there are three people who might have already done this or that or the other thing. When there's only one other player, several of the powers become a little bit less exciting because uh, there's less uh, you know, variable stuff getting you know, thrown into the soup. So uh, you know, if I were regularly playing a four-player games, I would totally keep this as a wonderful, fast-playing game you know, for gamers. Um, I mean, I, this could work as a gateway, but there are so many powers. You know, each one of these cards is unique. And it really is. Smart play is all about keeping track of what everybody's done and what everybody hasn't done, as well as all the different types of terrain, which score uniquely too. So, I mean, this is a nice filler weight uh, game for gamers, I would say, that um, just works wonderfully. As a two-player game, it worked okay. And we kind of found ourselves wishing we had two more people to share it with. So uh, that's why for us, it comes in at number 10 on the list. But in a higher player count game, I would have ranked this much higher, Valbara. Okay, then let's go on to number nine on the list, Evolution Another World, which was a uh, sponsored preview and uh, that I covered for its Kickstarter campaign. And this is the latest iteration, and as far as I'm concerned, probably the greatest iteration on the Evolution series of card games that have been with us now for over a decade, I think. I've played all the different offshoots. I thought they all did cool, interesting things. But this one is uh, basically set on an alien planet, and it fundamentally changes the, uh, the core idea of what Evolution has always been, which is a dog eat dog, uh, you know, evolve your creatures to stay alive or eat your uh, opponent's creatures to score as many points as possible. Uh, this game isn't about scoring points. It's a race. Because on this alien planet, the uh, alien creatures that we're trying to evolve are immortal and are trying to ascend to a higher plane of being, which makes them much more um, mercurial than previous games, because you can gain and lose traits. And interestingly, even though, like every evolution game that's ever come out, this one features a healthy dollop of me, my creatures attacking your creatures, your creatures trying to build defenses or counterattacking and all that, and that's generally something Jen and I don't go for. Here, the, the well, the gameplay is so great. Evolution has always been great. But here, because of the ephemeral nature of our creatures, it never really feels quite so aggressive as it has in previous uh, evolutions. So, if I were to ever play a copy of Evolution and I was going to you know, double down on the dog-eat-dog, watch out, my creatures are coming for yours, this would be the one I'd want to play because it just works, I think, so much more... Uh, not quite Care Bear friendly, but it's cl as closest to Care Bear friendly that Evolution has ever been. Plus, it has a really fun solo mode that I enjoyed quite a bit. So, anyway, um, it's still the fact that it is, uh, you know, still a kind of in-your-face game that brings it down a little bit and ends up at number nine of the month: Evolution, Another World. Okay, then let's go on to a number eight on the list: 
Time Lancers, which was another uh, sponsored preview I did for a game that's going to be crowdfunding very soon. Now, this is a time travel game. Uh, and I'm always intrigued by trying to bring time travel in a meaningful way into board games. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. This one, I think, does some very, very cool stuff. Um, but even if it wasn't time travel, I'd be intrigued by it because the core idea of this game is on your turn, you get three actions. And you spend those actions moving from one tile to another to another in the city in the future that we are, you know, the Blade Runner, cyberpunky type future that we're all moving around. Every one of the tiles that is represented by this future city gives you a different action, mostly gathering resources you need for your time travel missions. One of the tiles lets you, instead of moving around from tile to tile to tile, lets you move on to your time machine, which is a whole bunch of extra spots you can activate that lets you travel back in time to, um, you know, the, the game comes with dozens and dozens and dozens of big moments in human history, broken down into cultural ones, societal ones, technological ones. And the thing is, we are going back in time either to witness these events or change the events. Uh, because everybody has a collection of objectives. I need to change two scientific events, or I need to witness three cultural events, or whatever it might be. And everybody can see what everybody's trying to do. But here's what's interesting. When you go back in time, and you change an event in the past, um that say it's a science event, that ripples forward in time. And every uh, lo location in the future city that we're using that was science-based, we literally flip the tiles upside down and we change the board that we're playing on. And every uh, you know previous scientific event that every player has been to and claimed for themselves and put on their own board, those all flip. If you had actually changed a, uh, you know, a cultural event in the early 1900s and then I go back and I change a cultural event in the 1700s, then on your board, you have to flip your 1900s because suddenly, oh, time has been righted. And so, um, because we're all trying to get the right combination of uh, correct historical events and altered historical events, but every time we alter an event, it can you know ripple through time and affect everybody and the board we play on, well... Suffice to say, this game does time travel in a real and meaningful way that is thematically strong and a lot of fun to boot. And all of that aside, what I really like about the game is the way you select your actions. Because like I said, you've got this grid that's randomly generated of the city, and you're taking three turns, just moving from one place to another to another. It's kind of like a slow-moving worker placement game, where I have one worker, and I always have to do a worker action adjacent to a previous one. Now, this is uh, related to a game I covered many, many years ago called Colonist, which I absolutely adored. And um, I haven't really seen very many games do this kind of thing, but it works wonderfully here. Especially because there are future cops that are kind of blocking us, and we have to try and find ways around them. But the nice thing is, the you know a lesser game would have just had those future cops Hey, at the beginning of a round, you draw a card, you find out where the cops are, and oh, maybe it, it messes you up. But here, in this game, it's very smart, the design, because I know where the cops are now, and I can see where they're going next round. So the game, you know, that's just one example of how the game is smartly designed to give you lots to noodle on and think about and strategize for. And uh, I, I think that really elevates the design. Now, at its heart, this is still a fairly lightweight game. This is almost a gateway game. In fact, I... You know, if, if you have a gamer geek and you've got a bunch of gateway players who like time travel or who like, you know, Blade Runner-y type future stuff, 
this is going to work great because it's easy to teach. It's very simple. The actions you're actually doing, this would be my one complaint. I would love to see an expansion for this game that replaces some of the really simple actions you do in the city that is constantly changing because of time ripples into more complex combo-laden turns. But even still, uh, Jen and I were both very impressed by it. We enjoyed it on a lot of levels, thematic and mechanical. And um, if it were a little bit heavier, I think uh, you know it would rank quite a bit higher. But if you're looking for a kind of not a gateway, but a next step game that does it does time travel right, you might want to check out Time Lancers. And my run through for that will be going up in the next couple of weeks, so you can check it out for yourself. It's really sharp stuff. Okay, then let's move on to number seven on the list: Hidden. Arc, and uh, this is another sponsored preview uh, for a game that's uh, crowdfunding right now. And uh, I love the story that's being told in this game that you can either play competitively or cooperatively or solo. Uh, it's in our modern world where thousands of uh, species of fish are on the brink of going extinct, and it's our job to gather the uh, science and the public support, um, you know, and the government support to travel around the world and save these endangered fish. And it's basically a race game. Everybody's trying to do the best they can, as fast as they can, with peak efficiency to get out there, save the fish, and score points. And, um... The uh, thing that really makes this game stand out, uh, you know, aside from its wonderful theme, which I'm a huge fan of, is the fact that this has two different engine-building mechanisms going on simultaneously. Because every time you rescue a fish, very Splendor-like, uh, every time in Splendor, every time you get a gem, that makes you more powerful because it means, hey, it's like I've got a permanent version of that gem that I can use to get more gems later on. You know, the engine-building of Splendor is widely regarded as you know one of the best in years, and this takes that idea, but it applies it to, hey, the more fish I save that have a technological element, the uh, less technology I have to invest in later because I get more powerful. But on top of that, this is effectively a worker placement game where every turn you're going to activate one of four actions. And the thing is, at the beginning of every turn, you always get to collect uh, one new, what are they called? Um, uh, Opportunity tiles. There's five of them to choose from. You choose one. Some of them just give you instant resources you need. Some of them give you bonus actions you can take on your turn. But the most important ones are the upgrades. Because you can upgrade the four core actions. Whether it's research or you can upgrade the ability to upgrade. You can upgrade the ability to build infrastructure. You can upgrade the ability to move and save the fish. Which means as you install these upgrade tiles, every time you do a given action, it's more powerful. And the more you upgrade, the more powerful you get. So the thing that really makes this game special is you've got two simultaneous parallel upgradable engines that really, the game starts out fast, but it just zooms at high speed the longer it goes. And you know, it was it was a blast. Jen and I really appreciated the message of the game and the gameplay of the game too. The best way to play is competitive. The co-op works. The solo, I think, needs a little bit of a fine tuning. And I've talked to the developer. They are still making some more tweaks and whatnot here and there. But you can go check out the Kickstarter page to learn more about it. Suffice to say, we had a very very good time with number seven on the list, Hidden Ark. Okay. Then let's go on to a number six 
Amsterdam. This is the latest from Stefan Feld. This is basically Macau 2, the sequel to Macau, where you take the same basic, what was used to be called, I think, the Compass Rose, and now it's like the Action Wheel or something like that. Uh, the action has been uh, moved from Macau into um, Amsterdam, but it's still the same core idea that on your turn, there's a bunch of dice rolled uh, that have a color and a number. You're going to pick two of them, and that means if you pick a purple four, you are four rounds from now going to get those four purple uh, action cubes that will let you do actions that require purple cubes or you know any cube of your, of your choice. And so you, after you roll the dice, you're like, oh, there's some low value dice and some high value dice. Those low value dice means you'll get those actions now or next turn very, very quickly. Uh, but you won't get very many of them. If you pick an orange two, hey, yeah, next round, you're going to get a couple of orange cubes. So that'll be good for next round. But if instead you pick the, the brown six, it won't be till halfway through the game that that supply of six brown cubes shows up. So you'll have an amazing turn later, but you have to be... Macau has always been a brilliant example of short-term versus long-term strategizing and planning, and it's always been one of my favorite Feld games. So... It's been reinvigorated, brought um, you know into a, a new city with a bunch of new changes. What I love about the new changes, one is the fact that they have made one of the core things you have to do in Macau is ship your goods overseas. And in the original Macau, there was just no reason not to wait until almost the end of the game. And then there was a huge flurry as everybody just tried to ship, ship, ship like crazy. Now with Amsterdam, everybody's heavily incentivized to ship early. To not wait until you've got big super shipments. Do fast early shipments because there's lots of bonuses you can get that never existed before. Also, there's this side market that existed in Macau which was incredibly swingy. It could be cruelly unfair with swings of luck. And now it's been replaced with a more predictable and I think much more interesting and engaging market that is a huge improvement. So... Macau is one of my favorite felds of all time. So Amsterdam hugely improves on the shipping, hugely improves on the market, which are two major elements of the game. So I love this one more, right? I can see why more people would like this one more than the original Macau, because much like how Brass Birmingham took the gameplay of Brass, but made it more, at once, more complex... But at the same time, more forgiving, more relaxed. Uh, this game does the same thing. It's the same thing. Uh, Caverna took a really tight, tension-filled, Agricola-style gameplay and said, hey, here's a million more things you can play with, and it's also much more laid back and you don't really quite feel the same tension to survive. This does the exact same thing. Uh, it takes the um, you know, one of the most tension-filled Feld games of all time, Macau, and just makes it more easygoing with all these different um, little uh, safety valves. It's not quite so hard to get the right combinations of uh, cubes. Uh, there used to be much trickier. You have uh, you, I mean, If you can't use all your cubes, you can save one of them for future rounds. So the game just makes it more relaxed and at the same time introduces more stuff. So I suspect most people will like this one. In the same way, there are many, many people out there that prefer Caverna to... If you're the type of player who prefers Caverna to Agricola or Brass Birmingham to Brass Lancashire, you'll pro probably prefer Amsterdam to Macau. I'm the type of player who wants the game to really put me through my patience and push me harder, which is why I still think I prefer Macau. But I very much enjoyed Amsterdam as well. Heck, it came in at number six on the list, right? That's not bad. Okay. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. 
So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Now, let's move on to number five on the list, inventions, the evolution of ideas. Now, this is the uh, latest big box collaboration with design superstar Vita Lasarda and Eagle Griffin Games and Ian O'Toole. Um, you know, they are unstoppable, this trio of, of, of creatives, and they have made another just knocked it out of the park, whiz-bang, Vita Lasarda experience, and both Jen and I were blown away by it. This is uh, basically Basically, Vito Lasarda's version of a civilization game, but instead of a uh, you know focusing on the four exodness of it, you know the expansion, the exploitation, the extermination, this game ignores all of that stuff and instead focuses on our growth as a species through um, the introduction and evolution of ideas that become inventions. Hence the title of the game. And I love this story of civilization building so much more uh, because it is actually a positive reflection on how really what the, the core thing about that's important about the game is this is a game where you are constantly building off of the work of other players. If I'm the player who introduces an idea for a really great you know world-shattering um, you know, invention, I might not be the one to actually invent it. I'm creating an opportunity for you to invent the thing. And then after you invent the thing, that's created an opportunity for me or somebody else maybe to innovate and make it even better. And then finally, um, you know, once the thing's been invented, there's an opportunity for anybody who's had any part in the creation of this new idea, whether it is um, the internet or whether it is indoor plumbing, whatever it might be, uh, there's a fourth step, which is share this technology with the rest of the world. And so you can see why I would love uh, this kind of storytelling where players, even though we're competing to have the greatest society in history, we are constantly kind of working together and sharing in the rewards of the betterment of mankind. So yes, I love the thematic story that's being told. And like any great Vita Lasarda big heavy game, I love how theme is what drives all the mechanisms. And the mechanisms themselves, as any great Vita Lasarda game shows, are really simple. And if you pay attention to the theme, even though this is a big complex game, you will, uh, yeah, the theme will pull you through because nobody does it better bringing theme to life um, you know, in all its permutations. Now, uh, the gameplay itself, this is a worker placement game with some very nice twists on worker placement blocking that also introduces the idea that, hey, if, if players kind of communally do the same thing, that benefits each other and all that kind of stuff. Um, you, uh, players don't block you, you end up blocking yourself in the worker placement section. Also, interestingly, I'm not sure, is this the first time um, Vila Sarda has ever really delved deep into area majority stuff uh, because there's a portion of that as well as we're getting more of our people out into the different regions of the world to introduce new ideas in North America or Asia or wherever it might be. Um, so everything about this game is great. I think one thing people will want to know is, right, I've played the Lasarda games. Where does this rank? For me, this is getting into the heavier stuff. This is heavier than his most recent game, 
Um, weather machine. This is getting close to on Mars and Lisboa territory. Not Maybe not quite as heavy as those, but really close to those. So um, this is on the upper end of the depth and uh, complexity scale of a Vita Lasarda game, if that's the type of thing you're looking for. If you're looking for the lower end, well, this one's going to put you through your paces because there is so much going on here. Now, uh, this was a sponsored preview I filmed. I'm going to be having it up in time for the launch of the game. And I think at the end of the day, the reason it comes in at number five for us is I, I, I could have done with it just being just a tiny bit lighter, a tiny bit closer to Weather Machine, but there's no doubt about it. Both Jen and I were really, really impressed. And here's my secret hopeful wish. In the same way the Vila Sarda has uh, in years uh, recently re um, you know, revisited CO2 and on Mars and introduced co-op modes... Man, I would love to see a co-op mode for this. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. But even without that, as a competitive game, there's no surprise. Uh, it's another Vita Lasarda, Ian O'Toole, Eagle Griffin joint. It is freaking amazing. It's at the heavy end of what Euroing can be. And if that's what you're looking for, you will not be disappointed with number five of the month, Inventions, the Evolution of Ideas. Alrighty, now let's move on to number four. A, it's a Wonderful World, the Leisure and Decadence expansion, which is very, very cool. Um, uh, basically, It's a Wonderful World, uh, for folks who don't know, is a one of the greatest card-drafting, engine-building games the industry has ever seen. So satisfying uh, to you know pick the right card for you, um, you know, build up your civilization, and just make your engine stronger and stronger and stronger as you play through a very quick-paced four-round game. Um, although each round has, what is it, I think, is it six rounds of card drafting or something like that? It's a wonderful world. I've covered it in the past. You can go watch my original run-through to see just how great it is. So the real question is, what does Leisure and Decadence add? Well, first of all, it adds a story campaign, which I love. I think it's like... You will play through five of six chapters. There's a little bit of branching depending on um, you know, the kinds of choices you make and how the world evolves towards leisure or towards decadence and how you personally, from game to game, evolve um, towards leisure or towards decadence. But um, you know, like any great expansion, it adds several new things. The big one is a new cube, a purple cube that represents culture, which adds to technology and wealth and um, raw resources and energy, which were the... Uh, the I mean, you know, uh, the, the building resources. Those were the four resources of the game. Now there's a fifth resource called culture, um, where instead of you know trying to uh, get generals and um, you know entrepreneurs on your side, you're trying to get celebrities on your side. And again, because it's all about culture and, and uh, there's kind of like an air of celebrity to the game, that can really lead you towards a leisure, make life better for your people so they can be more leisurely, or uh, make it better for them by being more decadent. But the uh, new systems, and I've just told you about one. There's actually several because the game comes with boxes, and uh, every time you play a new chapter, you unle you unlock more new stuff. I'm just telling you about the first one, the one that's actually the title of the game, the Leisure and Decadence. But there are some very cool um, additions to this game that I would not want to spoil the surprise. So I'm not going to tell you what's in box number three or box number four, but I will say. Wow, if you like It's a Wonderful World, you are going to really like this stuff. My only real complaint about the game, and it doesn't really bother me, but I can see why it bothers some people, the uh, rules specifically recommend not mixing and matching um, this stuff with the existing. That if you want to play a Leisure and Decadence uh, game of... 
It's a Wonderful World, or even better, a series of five games as you tell, uh, as you know, as players grow in power and all that stuff. Um, the game recommends pulling out other expansions because uh, if you throw too much stuff into the big super deck, then the powers themselves get a little bit weakened. That's kind of unfortunate, um, mostly because it means, hey, if I want to play Leisure and Deccans, I got to pull the other expansion stuff out. And then after I'm done with Leisure and Deccans, if I want to play one of the other expansions, I got to pull Leisure and Decadence out. It's a minor inconvenience, but it's worth it because it just brings so much new um, flavor and really surprising mechanisms, which again, I feel bad, but I'm not going to spoil them for you, other than to say, it's great. Absolutely enjoyed. Oh, and by the way, uh, for the first time I tried It's a Wonderful World as a solo game, it works great as a solo. Um, and apparently it always has. So, that's a lot to recommend in my number four of the month. It's a Wonderful World, Leisure, and Decadence. Alrighty, but now, let's move on to number three on the list... Oh my goodness, my wife Jen and I so loved my shelfie. This game is such a huge hit in our household. We have played this game over a half a dozen times. Uh, actually, uh, my wife and I, we just filmed the Gen Jog, which is Jen's version of this thing, where you don't hear my opinions about all the games we play, but instead you hear her opinions. And after we were uh, finished talking about my shelfie, which, by the way, was her game of the month, um, she gave it a rare five stars, spoiler alert for that episode, she said, I want to play it again right now. So we had to get it out, and we played two games back-to-back -back immediately. Because what is the game? I haven't actually said. Uh, this is a phenomenal reworking of the uh, core idea of Connect Four, that old classic from the 70s, I guess, that I'm kind of jealous. I never had a Connect Four board when I was a little kid. I always wanted one because of that commercial I always saw growing up. But who cares about Connect Four when my shelfie exists? Oh my goodness. Um, in this game, unlike regular Connect Four, or the Connect Four-inspired um, game that came out was it a couple of years ago? For uh, you know, there's another one. This is the second modern gamer version of Connect Four. The beautiful thing about this is we're not competing on one board. You know, trying to one up each other and do kind of vertical stacking area control. Instead, everybody has their own grid that you know we're drafting tiles, dropping them in, and trying to make the best bookshelf full of board games and books and trophies and pictures and cats. For some reason, lots of cats like to hang out on this shelf, um, and so. The drafting is really simple and elegant and smart, but what's better is you can grab one, two, or three tiles from the uh, central board, but then when you place them, they all have to go in one column, and that's where things get tough, because you are trying to get certain types of things in certain spots to score bonus points, and you're also trying to get big groupings of the same type of thing next to each other on your shelf to score lots of points, and every time you play, there are two randomly chosen um, bonus objectives that everybody is racing to be the first to complete. So, there is a lot that goes into every single decision in this game, even though the game is so simple. This is this is that rarest of things. This is a true unicorn. This is 100% a very easy to pick up and play gateway game that is brilliant, um, that is still, for hardcore gamer geeks like my wife and I that are generally looking for heavier fare, we love this game and think it is so much fun. Uh, I mean, that makes it super duper special. A gateway game that works for all player levels is rarer than hen's teeth. And so the gimmick of Connect Four turned into a modern game is great. The drafting is fantastic. The multiple objectives that really make the game feel unique every time you play. Everything about this game is stellar. That's why it's my wife's game of the month, and it comes in for me at number three, 
my shelfie. Wow. Well, if that's so good, what beats it? What's number two on the list? Nimalia, which just came out of nowhere. I didn't know much about this game. It showed up in the mail, and I figured, oh, this is a uh, you know a card drafting game. You know, using the mechanisms of Sushi Go or Seven. Um, uh, Seven Wonders, you know, that kind of thing where, hey, I've got some cards, I'm going to keep one for myself, hand the rest of my neighbors, and I know I'll end up getting some of those, one of those back. And um, once you get the card, the game comes to life because one of my favorite mechanisms that's really started to explode in recent years is the idea of a card with a grid of icons on it. And when I play a card, I add it to my ever-expanding pile of cards, covering up some icons, leaving other icons exposed, trying to get groupings of things. And I mean, this still, as far as I know, does not have an official term, but we're getting enough of these games that Board Game Geek needs to come up with a term for this. I like to call it kind of card patchwork, or I, I guess you can kind of call it melding, but it's not really melding. It's its own thing. And I have loved almost every single um, game I have ever played that uses this mechanism, going all the way back to, what was it, Hanging Gardens? And, um, but... I think this is one of the best implementations of this mechanism I've ever seen. Um, in part because it borrows the scoring mechanism from one of the all-time modern greats, Tile Layers, Isle of Sky. Because every time you play, there's going to be four objectives. And these objectives are going to be scored at the end of rounds. But every round, you're going to score two, sometimes three objectives. And those objectives will be scored multiple times. Hey, this one's going to be scored on the first round, the third round, the fourth round. This one's going to be scored on the third round and the fourth round. This one's going to be scored um, only in round four and round two. And so you're constantly, because uh, of these shifting objectives that you're trying to aim for, you are constantly radically redesigning this layout. You're trying to make an animal reserve for all the cute little animals. And every time you play, hey, sometimes animals are more valuable than others. Sometimes you're trying to get certain combinations of terrain next to each other, uh, or you know, different types of animals paired together on the layout. It is so freaking good. Um, you know, the rules are almost non-existent. I mean, this is a game that I could teach you how to play almost instantly. And uh, so, interestingly, I'm going to say this is a really, really great gateway game that um, anybody could learn to play, uh, but is still a really deep and crunchy game with a lot to noodle on. It is freaking phenomenal. It is so rare to find these gateway games that work well for intro newbie players that so you can bring them in and yet will continue to be compelling and deep and interesting the more you play uh, because of the wonderful implementation of drafting and card stacking and variable objectives. I love everything about it. It comes in at number two of the month, Nimalia. Oh, and then the animals are adorable too. But folks, it's time for the number one. What could it be? Electropolis. Oh my goodness. I love this game so much. In large part because I love Tilang games. And, you know, Tilang, uh, at this point, should I just admit Tilang is my favorite mechanism of all time? Maybe it is. I'm starting to think maybe it is. But anyway, what makes this Tilang game better than all the others? Well, it does a lot of things right. I love Tilang games where you're really tightly constrained. You don't have a lot of room to maneuver. Here, we've got a 5x5 five five grid that we're trying to fill up with different types of power plants. And and each type of power plant um, you know, has the potential to score points differently, as is so often the case in these kind of SimCity building games. So this is a SimCity game where there's none of the city. It's just all about producing power, 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 whether it's you know dirty power or clean power. But the interesting thing is, so 
Um, you're doing the tile-laying stuff, and uh, we've seen this in a lot of games. What makes this unique and different? Well, there's a few things. One is, the uh, actually, it all comes down to the way we draft this game, because every round, a few cards are going to come out, that we are vying to grab. Uh, each of us is going to get one card uh, you know, from the four that come out every round uh, that tell us what kind of bonus we get, whether it's some kind of resource we need or some kind of in-game scoring thing or, or maybe just some points, whatever it might be. That's one half of the cards that you're going to vie for. And the other half tells you this is where you can build this round. You can only build in the southern half. You can only build on the outskirts. You can only build in the center. And so... Um, I, you know, I'm I'm going to grab one of these cards. It's going to say what I can do and what kind of bonus I get. But then the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to grab uh, anywhere from two to six new tiles that I want to add to my city. And these tiles are either the the uh, what do you call them? The power plants we need, or they are the fuel to run the power plants. So you've got two different things you're trying to chase after. But the interesting thing is, um, th this game comes with a King Domino style turn order system, where if on the previous round you had chosen a weaker action, hey, I'm going to pick up fewer cards, I'm going to get la or fewer tiles, I'm going to get last dibs on the on the card that I actually want, uh, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That means I'm going to go first this round. It works wonderfully in King Domino. It's one of the greatest turn order mechanisms that has ever been designed for board games, and it works great here. Um, so you've always got that concern. Hey, I want all these things, but I um, I also want to ensure I go first because I am des of the four cards that came out. There's only one that's good for me. The other three are terrible. So I have that tough, tough choice of okay. If I say I'm only going to grab three tiles this turn, will I get to go first because nobody would want to get two tiles, and then I'll get first dibs on the card I need, or um, and then like somebody, you know, okay, I'll go for it, and then somebody says, I'm going to take two tiles. Like, no! The card I wanted! So, you, I mean, the tension here is so incredibly powerful. But then, actually grabbing tiles. Remember, you can grab anywhere from two to six tiles, and the tiles are placed out in this circle, and whoever grabs tiles first, you know, takes a bunch of adjacent tiles from the circle. And what happens is that collapses the circle. You might want two tiles that are on opposite ends of the circle. And there's no way, because they're not next to each other, you can't grab them. But if you choose to go later in turn order and give up your shot at you know getting maybe what you want, other players might take things that bring the two things you want closer together, and then you can get them as a pair grouping. That's brilliant, too. Everything about this game is so smart. It came out in 2019, and it was a Taiwanese game, and as far as I know, it's still largely only available directly from the Taiwanese publisher, Homo Sapien Labs. And, um, you know, that's a real shame, because this game should be available world freaking wide. If you love tile-laying games that have a lot of really crunchy, tension-filled decisions, um, and a really fresh approach to the genre of tile drafting and tile-laying, you owe it to yourself. Well, you owe it to yourself to go watch Amy and Maggie do a phenomenal run-through and show just how much fun this game is. It's my number one of the month. It is Electropolis. Phew! Okay, folks. And that was it, folks. Those are some very, very fun games. Hopefully you enjoyed the video. And before we go, as always, I have to give a big, big thank you to all of these folks right here right there, somewhere on this side of the screen, who are zipping by. Uh, these are the folks who help keep Rotto running, either by backing the show on Patreon, over on YouTube as members, or on Twitch. And uh, again, oh man, 
Couldn't do it without you folks. And in addition to all of these who are zipping by really quick, I want to give a special shout out to the high-level backers, Stacy Lee, Steve Ercolini, Graham Wallace, Dennis Inti, Jay Huber, Adrian Dong, Jeff Young, Nicholas Elkins, Denmawa 2030 CE, Marlon Cruz, Charles Hill, KB, Selma Lee, Dr. Fu, Lex, Jerry Reese, Cheryl Howard, Chris Steele, Davey Davis, Dan Halligan, Mike Bloom, Issa Samuelionis, Amy Adams, Cobra Misfit, Jimmy Schroeder, Henson, Hans, Peter Bach, Caitlin, Albert, Dave, Salvatore, Victory, BHG, Blake Wilson, Amber Rail, uh, Mom Gamer, Chris Arnold, Jeff Glazen, Eric Z, Sharon Laubach, Heather Rudarian, Marilyn, and Kisa Griffin. You are all my favorite people in the world. No, no, no. You're all tied for my second favorite person in the world, because of course Jen is my favorite. But, uh, and then third place, all the rest of you. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. And also, thank you to Arcane Wonders for sponsoring this particular episode. Uh, folks, Furnace Interbellum is available now. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye